Welcome to the 78th episode of the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. I will start with a quick announcement. Uh, Just like last year, I'm going to go on a little bit of a break uh, for a few months. I would call this a summer break, except we're almost at the end of the summer. At any rate, what I did this year was to post all of the episodes that I had recorded uh, in the spring and during the summer until, you know, I cleared my docket. And so... I'm going to take some time to uh, record some more episodes and think about some more uh, themes that I want to explore in the next season, if you want to call it that. Also, I need some time to prepare some new courses and things like that, so I'll I'll see you after a bit of a break. Okay, our current episode is the second in a two-part sequence, as I imagined it. The previous episode was on getting by in the Roman Empire, and today we're going to talk about giving. And I think it's important to note that in societies that are extremely unequal in terms of wealth, there develop various strategies, whether institutional or moral or social, to persuade or get the people with the most money to share it so that others can get by or to promote common projects, you know, like building a community theater or something like that. And back when I was in grad school, the Roman Empire was always talked of as sort of extremely unequal, like nothing to do with modern societies. And, you know, it's hard to imagine just how economically unequal it was. And and now I think in many respects, the tables have turned. Our society is vastly more unequal. Even public universities, um, to speak from a sphere that I know, are basically chasing private money and looking for donors. And there's always a subtle interpersonal dynamic that's involved in these transactions. Kind of a subtle power play about, you know, who's doing whom a favor, the person giving or the person receiving. And that has often made me think about the situational politics of giving and receiving. And this is something that you can even notice at a dinner table if you go out with friends and at the end of the meal you you offer to pay and you you'll see that there are people from some cultures who are like very happy that you offered to pay and yes you you go right ahead and there are others where you get into a major fight a no you can't do this i will pay and then there is uh, you know sub classifications so once you start the fight about no i pay no you whatever Uh, then is this a group that will agree to just kind of split it and sort of remain at peace, but with a kind of tense equilibrium that someone's honor wasn't satisfied? Um, Or do you just fight it out to the end until someone, through some devious trick by pretending to go to the bathroom and yet paying while no one's looking, manages to win? And of course, that win will seem to someone as a loss because uh, you paid for everyone else's drinks and you lost money. And so it's like a, from a strictly economic calculus, you lost. But there's this uh, kind of honor or you know, cultural principle by, by which you won. All of which always made me think of some of Nietzsche's aphorisms, especially in one of his early books, Human All Too Human, where he probes at the kind of subtle power dynamics that are involved in giving and receiving. 
and how the sort of economic calculus does not translate into a moral dynamic. That giving great gifts, for example, doesn't always elicit gratitude but resentment because the transaction revealed who has power over whom. And conversely, when people are asked to give by appealing, when we appeal to their pity for someone's misfortune, Nietzsche interpreted that as an aggressive act, that pity is a power play and is used to weaken the person with the more resources and sort of get him down. And that giving is then not as satisfactory an act as a kind of personal fulfillment of demonstrating power. Uh, anyway, he, he really liked to explore all the sort of nooks and crannies of, of you know, human psychology. Uh, this isn't science, after all. It's just uh, experimental observations. Now, here's an interesting one that has stuck with me. It's about offending and being offended. It is much more agreeable to offend and later ask forgiveness than to be offended and grant forgiveness. Because the one who does the former demonstrates first his power and then his goodness. And the other, who has been offended and forgives, if he does not want to be thought of as inhuman, he must forgive. Because of this coercion, pleasure in the other's humiliation is slight. Anyway, there isn't much in ancient literature that approximates this kind of subtlety uh, in exploring the psychology of giving and receiving. But such as it is, is found in early Christian texts and is explored in the book that we will be discussing today, which is by Dan Kainer, a professor at Indiana University. And the book is called The Rich and the Pure, Philanthropy and the Making of Christian Society in Early Byzantium. And it's about all the different kinds of giving, but also the moral politics of receiving as well. Because, as you will hear, there were groups in early Byzantine society that had a lot of money and felt in some ways morally obligated to give, but there were also groups, for example, ascetics, to whom it was sort of socially acceptable or, or good to give, but who, for reasons of their own, couldn't receive because they weren't supposed to accumulate wealth. And so there's this kind of tense relationship among all of the different kinds of groups. Uh, and Dan's book explores all of these wonderfully. And I strongly urge you to read it. In our discussion here, we're talking more about the different kinds of, quote, charity that existed in this period um, and, you know, what parties were involved in them. But I definitely urge you to read the book if you want to find the sources that talk about the kind of moral conundrums that the different parties found themselves in uh, facing these transactions of giving and receiving. Okay, this is a longer conversation, so I'm going to end my introduction here. Thanks again to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. Uh, let's get right to the conversation with Dan Kaner. Hello, Dan. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Anthony. Good to hear you. I've been looking forward to recording this with you uh, ever since I read your book because it was it's so 
well-written, really enjoyable. And what I liked about it in particular, among all of the conceptual issues that you raise, is that you use so much material from the sources, so many stories with which to sort of get under the skin of the moral dilemmas that these people were facing and to kind of explore all the, you know, the, the, the moral intricacies of giving and receiving in different Christian communities. Uh, so it was just really well done and, and enjoyable. Uh, and I never knew that it was quite so complex, sure. <laughs> that there were so many different types of giving and that they all were entangled in their own sort of messy moral dynamics. And it made me think at some point of the joke that, you know, goes around about the Eskimos that they have 50 words for snow, um, which apparently is not true, but whatever. And yeah. so Christians seem to have all these different words for giving and charity and so forth. Um, so we'll look at some of these categories later on, but could you just give us a preview, just kind of briefly tell us some of the main categories of Christian charitable giving that you explore in the book? Yeah, sure. Uh Look, I had no idea when I got into this uh, quite how complex it was either. And one of the joys of this research project and then especially writing, and because it was through writing that, that things really unfolded to me that I hadn't realized before, uh, was, just, was to just see uh, that, oh, um, there were complexities, but they were consistent. Uh, throughout this, this, the material that we have from the, what I call the early Byzantine era, which is, which is actually uh, what I'm referring to is the late Roman Empire of the Eastern Mediterranean, largely from the fourth to seventh centuries. Right. Any, anyhow, um, so this is a period of uh, Christianization uh, when the church and related uh, institutions were becoming um, uh, part of the Roman world. In any case, during this period, uh, there evolved these various forms of gift giving, some of them familiar, some of them not. The ones that I focused on uh, were uh, five different gifts or gift ideals, as I like to think of them, uh, specifically alms, uh, charity, a gift called a blessing, a gift called a fruit bearing, and offerings, by which I mean lit liturgical offerings. Right. Now, and these are yeah. distinguished by who's giving, who's receiving, and what the sort of moral intent behind it is. Exactly. Uh, one of the things that I tried to do in this book is explain what exactly... Uh, some of these ideals originally meant in this time period, why they were created, how they were exemplified in action, and what what resources and purposes and responsibilities that each apply each implied. Um, one of the main things also is that since each type of gift symbolized or defined a type of relationship, I try to explain what those relationships were, why people were concerned about them. And this is where social history comes into the into the project. But right. I can, you know, at, at at risk of sounding too schematic, I can point out a few of the contrasts. I mean, one of the interesting and important things about these gifts is that they kind of evolved 
in contrast either to one of the others among them or in contrast to secular gift giving practices of the time. Right. In any case, uh, you know, t- t- I, I've, I've mentioned five gifts, uh, religious gifts, um, to return to the first of them, uh, the gift of alms. Uh, this is the most basic uh, Christian gift, also perhaps one of the most complex of all of them. Literally, we're talking about a gift of mercy, uh, anything given to someone in need uh, from human-generated surpluses that a person possesses. Such gifts were meant to only uh, create short-term relationships uh, and expected some sort of reciprocation. In contrast to that, a gift of charity, uh, a gift of love, uh, was on the one hand considered the highest form of almsgiving, but on the other hand, it was also considered something something uh, qualitatively different from an alms, and actually quantitatively different as well. Unlike a gift of alms, a gift of charity was thought to involve sacrifice, in particular self-sacrifice, hmm. uh, which meant that it came out of a person's most essential resources. I can talk about that later, but I just want to point that out as a as a contrast that differentiates it from from alms, which were came out of someone's 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 surplus. Uh, I could you know a blessing uh, just to stick with questions of resources. Blessing is the most familiar of all the gifts that I discuss, and it's really a central one for reasons I can discuss later. Uh, but it. This is a gift that was conceptualized as being a, a gift that came from God-given resources. Uh, and this meant uh, that it was considered a divine gift that was actually only passed by human givers to human receivers. Uh, and that this uh, resulted in, in, in a sense that there was no, it, it didn't impose an obligation of mm. reciprocation or of long-term relationships. So uh, that doesn't tell you really what the core of these, these gifts were, but it does show you how you have contrasts uh, among them. And then the final two I mentioned, the fruit bearing, the liturgical offerings. Now, both of these were gifts given by humans to God through God's representatives, uh, the servants of God, uh, namely uh, church clergy or or monks. And um, these gifts did in fact impose obligations of reciprocation on these uh, represent God's representatives. Uh, so they imposed obligations of service, which um, meant primarily uh, intercessory intercessory prayers, either given during uh, the church liturgy, uh, where someone's name would be prayed for, or by an individual monk who would uh, devote prayers to uh, a, 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 for in the memory or, or in the help of a person who'd mm. given the gift. So, so since yeah. Since we're talking about a Christian context here primarily, it would be useful to give our audience a sense of background. So what kinds of giving or sort of philanthropy or charity in quotation marks um, was going on in the pagan Roman Empire, just so that we know 
so very briefly, so oh, yeah. what, what the background of Christian practice was. Well, sure. Uh, look, um, the ancient Mediterranean world was characterized by all sorts of different uh, gift-giving customs and different types of gifts. Um, I'm not going to talk about religious gifts uh, for the moment. Um, uh, instead, what I want to talk about are uh, a world which uh, had a, a culture of public benefactions, uh, as well as uh, a culture of, of philanthropy. Um, so uh, both classical Greece and uh, uh, the Roman world were distinguished uh, by, by, by other ancient peoples, um, by uh, very old secular civic cultures of, of benefactions. What I mean by this is the expectation uh, that citizens, primarily wealthy citizens, would give their communities communal, communal amenities out of their own resources in return for public recognition and honor. Uh, this, this culture is, is incredibly uh, important to recognize. The existence of this culture is very important to recognize um, it's a fundamental uh, uh, distinctive aspect of um, uh, the classical Greek and Roman worlds. It derived from um, a specific ideology, uh, and that was an ideology of citizenship that developed out of uh, this, the, the idea of a city state. Um, and it really accelerated, I mean, it, we can trace it back to archaic times in uh, both the Greek and Roman worlds, but it actually really accelerated during uh, the Hellenistic uh, and uh, um, later early Roman imperial periods. And this culture of benefactions is one of the main reasons why when people go and see the ruins of ancient Greek and Roman cities today, uh, you can st still see so many monumental secular monuments and features like baths and and features, uh, sorry, baths and and theaters and libraries. I mean, uh, virtually all of these were uh, created uh, and maintained by uh, private donors as gifts to their community. So that is a very important part of the background to what. Uh, I'm talking about. It was a world in which giving to others uh, was kind of built into um, the fabric of society in ways that that we don't usually uh, see much of today. Um, alongside of that, there was uh, giving that occurred within a patron-client relationship. Again, this is something you see in both classical uh, Greece and, and classical Rome, in which uh, patrons were expected uh, to provide um, help, uh, both material help and legal help, and sometimes protection to people who were called their clients, uh, who um, would reciprocate with some kind of service in return. Um, this service could be a particular skill that they provided uh, to the the uh, the patron. Um, this is in a, in a world in which there weren't too many uh, uh, 
professions that would take care of your problems. So you'd keep a retinue of retainers who would do this, and these would be your clients. Or else they would attend you in the marketplace, uh, support you politically, uh, and do uh, other things that um, came up because of the politics, again, of the city-state. Um, finally, in addition to this, uh, uh, there was uh, a notion of charity and philanthropy. Now, uh, it is common consensus that Greco-Roman uh, ethics did not tend to um, put much emphasis on giving to poor people, okay? Uh, poor people, by that I mean poor people in an unknown poor people, the, a group who we would today call the anonymous poor. Uh, Jewish tradition, ancient tradition, Jewish tradition did emphasize this, uh, but it's not clear uh, in Jewish tradition that this meant giving to poor people outside of the Jewish community. Uh, in both cases, I think it's, 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 it's easy to uh, overstate this. It's quite clear that both Jews uh, and pagans uh, uh, gave to uh, poor people or people who were in distress. Uh, we know, for example, that uh, one place is that place that beggars commonly hung out in antiquity was around temples and in temple precincts, uh, which is clearly, they were clearly there because that's a place where they felt both protected and where they could get uh, what we would call alms. Uh, but on the whole, though, there wasn't um, any uh, ethical emphasis on giving to people who you didn't know who were outside of your family, your tribe, your social group, your citizen body, uh, um, uh, anything of that, any group beyond any individual outside of those those groups. Sure. I mean, we'll talk a little bit about how Christians change that dynamic, but there's another sort of side aspect of the giving that I also want to address, which is institutional. So your book looks mostly at individuals um, making gifts to other people or, or, or to the churches or monasteries, but the wealthiest institution in the Roman Empire was the, the emperor, the, the imperial treasury. Um, emperors did uh, use those resources to you know, make large gifts to uh, cities, individuals, churches, and so on. Um, so what just can you can you briefly um, outline what those activities looked like? Um, so did emperors engage in these types of Christian giving that you outline in the book, except on a sort of more massive scale, um, outside of their own personal you know gifts that that match the patterns that you discuss elsewhere? Did they use the institutions of the state to advance you know these kinds of practices? Yeah, let let me before I turn to what Christian emperors did. Let me uh, turn to what the, the, the Greco-Roman tradition was or the uh, practices of emperors in the early empire. Most of your readers, most of your listeners will have heard of uh, the phrase bread and circuses, this famous yes. phrase, phrase from Juvenal, uh, describing uh, practices that um, uh, were uh, 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 
part of the life in the city of Rome at, at his time. Uh, what Bread and Circuses refers to specifically is the state issuance of a, uh, of a dole of bread, that's the bread, uh, and uh, various spe spectacles, especially uh, games, uh, especially their um, chariot races, uh, but also gladiatorial contests. Now, bread and circuses is um, uh, perhaps just the, the, the most uh, large-scale manifestation of the culture of, of benefactions that I described earlier. Um, it Bread and circuses themselves had, were, was rooted in Republican Roman tradition, but then uh, during the first century uh, of the Common Era, became really taken over by emperors. Uh, and this is both because emperors wanted all the credit to be the principal benefactors of their of, of the Roman people, uh, but also because these things were so uh, grandiose and expensive that only uh, a Roman emperor could uh, marshal the imperial uh, resources needed for the transport of the grain, for the acquisitions of exotic animals, for the training of the charioteers uh, and various other people uh, involved in these. Uh, and in fact, uh, a very uh, large complex of um, entertainment facil uh, uh, groups were sent up um, who uh, trained uh, performers and provided uh, cheerleaders and provided uh, um, people who hawked um, food in the stands. And these were known, became known, we, we talk about them today as circus factions yep. uh, known in their various colors, the, 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 the greens, blues, reds, and whites. In any case, uh, what I've just described to you is probably the most famous example of um, the uh, institutionalization of uh, this cultural benef benefactions. Uh, and it was mimicked, imitated in cities by lesser uh, magistrates throughout um, the Roman Empire. Another institutional um, uh, uh, construction that, the, that, that dates from the second century from Trajan onward that needs to be mentioned is that the Romans had a, a, um, a system they called the alimenta uh, or alimentary uh, um, uh, system or project or institution uh, in which, um, uh, which, was, which was designed to support uh, male and female uh, children uh, in uh, Italian cities during the second and the third century. Now, this is actually a very complex uh, um, system set up and one which seems to have um, uh, at least fed uh, children in Italy for um, a certain set of children in Italy uh, for uh, throughout the second and third century. Um, both, it's, it's really important to stress, however, that this elementary uh, uh, system was also restricted to Italy. This is because Italy was uh, the sort of heartland of the Roman Empire, uh, the privileged, most privileged part of the Roman Empire. Um, 
And uh, it was very much connected with an ideology of citizenship. It was not, it, it may have benefited some people who were poor, but it wasn't designed to benefit them because they were poor. Uh, and that's important to emphasize. Yeah, it was more uh, like a, per a perk of citizenship. It was a perk of, exactly, thank you. Uh, now, as far as, uh, you know, once Christianization occurs, and especially with the conversion of Constantine, you start to see uh, 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 changes. Um, the, cha the main change uh, is that the emperors are now providing state resources to the church in order to help the church uh, carry out its, um, its charitable philanthropic uh, program. S uh, specifically, you find this with Constantine not only giving endowments uh, uh, and various perks to the church in order to help facilitate um, its, its, its outreach efforts, but also it gives over um, institutions or, or facilities uh, that uh, we would now call hospita hospitals or hostels. Um, but originally what these really were, were just giving over inns and, and, uh, uh, and empty buildings uh, to, to the church so that they could put uh, either disabled poor people in them or sick people. Uh, in any case, that's the beginning of the, the church hospital system. Uh, it, and we know that it first started with uh, Constantine's um, gift of, of buildings known as xenodokia, uh, stranger receivers, which is just a, the common classical word for an inn. Uh, two churches in Constantinople and Antioch. And then from there, it seems to have spread. Yeah, so over the course of the fourth century, the church amassed considerable properties, both land and uh, you know, real estate and resources and also allocations from the state. Like you can draw on these resources for your own um, you know, charitable uh, activities. So... What was yeah, the, let, let me just say something about that, Anthony. Yeah. Uh, that's an important uh, an important point is that you know, when when talking about bread and circuses, I talked about the the state, the emperor having uh, the um, the means to move uh, uh, materials around, especially grain around. Well, in the later empire uh, after Constantine, this system known as the Annona. Uh, which was known for the, the technical word, which means essentially the ration for the military and for the um, to, to 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 feed the military and to feed the cities of Rome, Constantinople, uh, and then probably also a couple a few other cities. Some of this anona was also diverted or made available to um, major uh, episcopal sees, and so this provided a resource that the church could use in any way it wanted, but it was supposed to be used to support the clergy and other uh, people who were considered poor. So that, that was an important fungible resources that the emperors uh, had their, um, uh, emperors had their ministers give to the church. Yeah. So what was the sort of moral status of that 
property owned by the church, the resources owned by the church. Um, so there's a sense that its purpose is solely to be used to be to benefit the needy um, or for other you know, charitable Christian projects, and that it didn't obviously didn't belong to the bishop, but that bishops could abuse their control over these resources because they did have like executive, right? Like total executive control over how they were used, but they were, there were heavy uh, moral obligations and expectations. And I think even some legal ones as to how they could use this wealth. So could you talk a little bit about that, the sort of moral dynamic of the bishops and the resources that they commanded in order to, you know, help others? Sure. Uh, one of the um, uh, certainly there there were there are stories of bishops abusing the resources that they had. Uh, this is something which is uh, totally to be expected, um, and we start to hear about complaints about bishops not being trustworthy about either handling the resources or how they dealt with poor people. Um, from the third century onward. Uh, there were um, times when uh, bishops were accused of things and uh, groups of bishops would meet to um, deliberate over what the penalty should be. And occasionally it meant that it, it resulted in people being uh, dethroned from their, um, from their position. Uh, more often than not, it appears uh, that uh, bishops um, uh, closed circles, closed ranks, uh, and protected e each other. Um, but it was not so easy for to get away with these things, and bishop did have to uh, be careful, uh, partly because they had um, a, a very vigilant uh, self-interest group among their constituents. These were uh, the the growing monastic population. Uh, these were people who um, themselves were identified as poor people uh, and who also had access to uh, the funds, the resources that the church had. Um, and these people tended to be the first to call out bishops if it was clear that they were using these resources in the wrong way. Uh, an obvious wrong way for a monk would be to be spending a lot of this money either on one's own family, which is something we often hear bishops accused of, or else diverting uh, the funds of the poor to build grandiose churches or too many churches. Uh, in order to um, uh, enhance or enhance the Episcopal See uh, at the expense of the poor. So you have these watchdogs, essentially, who um, are very helpful in keeping uh, the church, uh, church officials in line because um, most church officials were stuck in the places that the, in, in which they officiated. These positions, right. unlike unlike other uh, positions in the Roman Empire, uh, once you were made a bishop of a city, you were there until you died. Uh, and it was very difficult to move uh, somewhere else. And that uh, in itself uh, put
put pressure on someone to um, be in good terms with other uh, groups who had an, an interest in the poor fund that the that the church controlled. Yeah, the most notorious uh, case, like Theophilus, the Bishop of Alexandria. Sure. Uh, right, is a notorious uh, case of well, Theophilus. Theophilus and a number of others were accused of something which uh, the the term in the fifth century was lithomania. Yes, uh, and lithomania uh, uh, essentially meant um, uh, going crazy about building monumental monumental uh, uh, churches, uh, both that were uh, far too sumptuous um, or unnecessarily sumptuous or unnecessary uh, in number. I think. Uh, Theophilus was said to have added 13 churches to uh, Alexandria's nine uh, and uh, diverted all sorts of funds that were donated to the poor in order to um, in order to make those buildings. Yeah, so by and large, the church adapted to the regime of private property of the Roman Empire. Uh, Roman law is very much about private property. And there was considerable inequality of wealth in the Roman Empire. And for the most part, you know, the Christian community was, you know, eventually was that Roman community. So um, all of those aspects uh, carried over. But there were also some, uh, you know, Christian thinkers, some more radicals who questioned the kind of society that's produced by by wealth and wealth inequality, private property, and so forth. Could you say a little bit about the these sort of wealth radicals that you mentioned? So these are people who argue that perhaps all wealth should be abolished or is tainted by sin, and there should be much, much more redistribution than there actually was. And conversely, I got the sense that in one part of your book, you mentioned some Christian thinkers who seem to approximate what in the U.S. today is called the prosperity gospel. Um, and for our audience who's not in the U.S., this sort of basically means that if you're wealthy, that means that God favors you, so you're doing something right. And so the, you know, the, the approach is that to celebrate one's personal success in the world as a sign of God's favor. And yeah, there's an expectation that you give from that wealth, but that yeah. you know, being hugely wealthy is not in itself morally problematic, quite the contrary. Right. Uh, well, yeah, that, so this is a big topic. Um, uh, the attitudes to wealth uh, were, were more ambivalent than strongly positive or negative. Uh, I love ambivalence. It 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 gets <laughs> it gets to the heart of reality, gray zone <laughs> stuff. And this is what this is how uh, most the moralists actually operated in this era. Now, look. Um, uh, on the one hand, there were uh, what you say. Uh, let's say um, wealth radicals. Uh, there were uh, uh, groups who. Um, embraced uh, uh, the saying attributed to Jesus in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, 1912, if you wish to be perfect, uh, go sell all your property, give to the poor, and come follow me. Yes. Well, 
there, there are several such uh, passages in the Gospels that can uh, lead to and, and did lead to material, the idea that material renunciations were a crucial part of becoming a, perf a perfect Christian. And uh, in the pre-Constantinian times, uh, this resulted in a lot of ascetics being uh, attached to and supported by various church communities. In the post-Constantinian era, uh, this was uh, the background to the institutional monastic movement, uh, among whom there were some real radicals. And I wrote about them in a previous book, uh, Wandering Begging Monks. Yes. Um, but uh on the on the other hand um there was a, a a strong recognition that if you adopt the old testament well well first of all um the 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 new testament uh uh conditioned uh, qualified those radical statements by the the notion of perfection uh and it said if you if so matthew uh 1912 starts if you wish to be perfect uh and generally speaking in christianity of this era uh there was it was a christianity of of, of two ways one for ordinary christians who uh were um uh encouraged to uh have sex uh in order to have children more christians uh and uh to have um, to earn enough money for themselves uh, and to be uh, help out other people. Uh, in next to those, that's one way. And the other way of Christianity was the perfect Christians, and these were to uh, uh, focus on uh, spiritual uh, advancements and uh, devote them their lives to. Um, uh, sexual and material renunciations in order to put their priorities in with the uh, uh, spiritual pursuits. And these people were supposed to be supported by those who, uh, by the ordinary Christians. Um, now, so that, that notion of, of two ways was there in Orthodox Christianity already in pre-Constantinian times. What comes to the fore in the post-Constantinian era are, is the recognition that the Old Testament um, uh, had very respectable figures known as the patriarchs of the Hebrew people, all of whom were considered to be uh, uh, the righteous, well, righteous rich. And these were uh, individuals who God favored and God's favor was uh, um, manifested in their having lots of children uh, and lots of property and, in fact, slaves. Uh, so they prospered in both health and wealth. Um, this, this and a few other uh, uh, New Testament passages uh, um, did, in fact, in uh, the early Byzantine period, give rise to ideas that uh, wealth was a sign that God had blessed a person um, or that uh, uh, God would re reward a person for uh, their gener generosity with material uh, goods. The way this is different from the what's known today as the prosperity gospel or prosperity theology 
um, which really got a bad reputation in the 70s and 80s with televangelists trying to extract uh, donations from, from poor viewers, promising that they would get rich as the result. And God yeah. would back them as if God were a capitalist. Yes. Uh, in any case, uh, a major difference from with this is that um, in almost every story that we hear about this, it's it's based on a person having um, given to a poor person, and that act almost always is an act that involves some kind of self denial or 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 personal self self sacrifice. Uh, which is an aspect which, to my knowledge, seems to be absent from the 21st century prosperity uh, gospel. Yeah. So, in any case, you 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 have this idea of where 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 there is such thing as 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 uh, good, clean, God given uh, wealth, where uh, uh, people drew the line, uh, and where wealth became bad wealth was uh, A, if you were unwilling to share it with other people. Uh, uh, the classic example of this in antiquity is the, uh, the miser who um, hoards grain or other things that a community needs during a famine uh, in order to get the price to go up. Or else uh, that you've, um, uh, you've, you've, you've received your wealth through exploitation of, of poor people or outright seizure of their property. Um, there is a term, an important term in my book and an important term in the moral thinking of um, this Eastern Christian world. And that's the Greek word pleonexia. It's very hard to have a simple translation of pleonexia. It, it really means essentially having more than you should. <laughs> yeah. But it is, it is seen as such a profound um, uh, root of problems, both in society and in a person, individual soul, that one uh, of our most prominent uh, preachers of this period, John Chrysostom, um, he makes pleonexia to be really the root of of the fall of Adam, uh, Adam and Eve. And he talks about at length how God does everything to try to prevent people from indulging in this passion of of always wanting more than they need or or, or uh, what should be allotted to them. Uh, and that transgression of that is what causes the all sorts of ills in in society. I bring that up partly because almsgiving and other things are seen as remedies of this particular pathology, uh, this drive for more self-aggrandizement on a uh, on a very harmful uh, social scale. Yeah, let's flip the question from those who have to those who need. Was there debate among Christians in this period over um, you know, whether the recipient of philanthropy or charity had to be morally worthy of it or merely just needy. This is just needing help regardless of his moral stat stature. Great. That's a great question. Um, look, uh, in, during the, in the history of philanthropy, 
um, in the late Middle Ages, early modern period, there there came to be a real uh, emphasis on the moral reform of the recipient of welfare, or the idea that a um, uh, uh, that giving to a person might not help improve their character. Okay, now. Mm-hmm. I point that out because that's you, you hear that today. It's not these are not real, really something that you hear in antiquity. So what you do hear are people being reluctant to give uh, anything to beggars uh, because they're um, for, for a lot of reasons. Uh, all the reasons that we have today, for example, um, uh, in, but also, uh, everyone was aware that uh, cities in antiquity were full of professional gangs of beggars who would um, do all sorts of things to attract attention and attract sympathy. And, you know, we're fakers uh, uh, yeah. at this. Um, and uh, so one of the interesting things that you find happening is that it's exactly at this point in sermons on almsgiving where again John to mention John Chrysostom uh, he emphasizes that you know in order to one should not be hung up on trying to scrutinize the person asking for aid uh, but instead uh, one should be philanthropic now, actually, in our our conversation, Anthony, I haven't I haven't actually just discussed what philanthropy meant, and I think now is a good time to do it. Okay. Um, uh, philanthropy in both Greco philanthropy was an ancient word and concept. Uh, it's rooted actually in um, uh, uh, early classical, maybe archaic Greek thinking. Uh, what it what it meant was not simply being kind to people you don't know. Instead, what it meant was being kind to other human beings, even though you suspect or know that they don't deserve it. Uh, huh. uh, an important, in fact, and crucial as element of it was what we would call clemency. I also would think indulgence uh, helps. Um, So, uh, uh, for example, um, this term originally, it it originated, uh, it seems, as a pagan religious uh, notion. Um, So, uh, um, the way uh, uh, ancient Greeks conceptualized their, 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 polytheistic pantheon was a, a set of, of forces beyond their control, um, many of which were not particularly friendly to human beings, okay? Uh, but um, there were a few gods whose essence seemed to be that they were friendly to human beings, despite the fact that most gods were not necessarily friendly to human beings. Right. So. Hermes, Prometheus, Demeter are um, some of the philanthropic uh, deities. Um, there aren't many of them. Then in, in uh, the uh, 
classical social context, this ideal philanthropia became a uh, sort of countervailing ethic towards what I've already described. In, I've already described how most ethics in Greco-Roman and Jewish tradition in antiquity uh, were restricted to one's group or tribe. Well, philanthropia is philanthropia was a a, a notion that uh, uh, a countervailing notion which urged someone to be kind to people outside of one's family group or tribe. Right. And this is something which uh, you know lends towards universal uh, being universally kind. Now, in practice, this generally meant in uh, a city just being nice to people who you encountered in the street who you didn't know. Uh, but um, it did eventually become applied, first of all, to the Christian God uh, and um, by, the, by the writers of the, uh, the Gospels, and in particular, the writer of the uh, letter to Titus, uh, where um, God is both described as philanthropic, uh, despite the fact that humans are sinners, and so there again, that concessive aspect of clemency, and linked with that philanthropic uh, notion is mercy, uh, which gives gave rise to the conception of alms and giving alms. So alms giving in Christian conception becomes an expression of this philanthropic God. In any case, I bring all this up because when a preacher like John Chrysostom was trying to convince his, his congregations to be kind to beggars, even though they strongly suspected that the beggar was didn't deserve it, yeah. uh, Chris Austin would add to add to his sermon the rhetorical force of the concept of philanthropia. He says, this is not the time for scrutinizing. Right. This is the time for philanthropy. This is right. not the time for asking the history of someone. This is time for philanthropy. So philanthropy meant something different from what we think about it. Philanthropy meant the challenge to be good to someone despite the fact that you didn't trust them or that they that you might think that they might uh, um, turn against you uh, in any case. Um, so... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you've mentioned alms. Let's briefly talk about the specific interpersonal dynamics of um, alms and and uh, some of the other uh, categories of gift giving. In that is, who gives alms to whom, and what's the moral logic behind it? Um, briefly, if we could run through them because we're almost out of time. And I want sure. to explain how these are all different from each other. Okay. Well, as I as I pointed out, uh, alms becomes a a basic uh, expression, the, probably the most basic expression of the Christian concept of philanthropy. The idea you it's 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 something that you give to someone in need. Um, this is you know in you know in in more fancy way of saying this, uh, it was a gift that came out of an asymmetrical relationship. I prefer to say it's you know one person who is fortunate and another person who is 
unfortunate. Right. Um, the the there are two basic purposes of an alms, though uh, th- there's a lot that can be said about almsgiving, but two basic purposes um, that I really focus on is a uh, the idea to briefly temporarily ameliorate the um, uh, the discrepancies and the 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 inequalities uh, in uh, the Christian Roman world. Um, uh, so that uh, the those who the have-nots will receive something from the haves. Uh, the second important thing, and in fact more important thing, from uh, a lot of our, our preachers and then later Byzantine tradition is that this was seen to be something that helped helped the giver more. Is more important that this helped the giver than whatever it provided for the receiver. Receiver. Right. So the the idea was, uh, uh, you know, according to John Chrysostom, and uh, so I call this Chrysostomic almsgiving, which became the the main uh, Byzantine tradition on this. Okay. uh, The rationale for for giving alms was that, um, well, first of all, uh, almsgiving was to be done personally and directly. Uh, And the idea was that you you forced a person to actually do the giving themselves. And the reason you did this was to force a person to encounter and expose to them uh, someone more, someone unfortunate, uh, uh, someone less fortunate from themselves. And the idea was that this counter would uh, make a person over time if repeated such the, the practice of almsgiving would make them compassionate. C- compassion is something that always needs to be learned. Uh, and this was a basic way that um, preachers saw that, well, let's say the rich people could become compassionate towards others. Uh, but it, 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 it always based on the idea that it had to be a direct encounter uh, and it had to be an encounter in which the um, the giver was graciously condescending uh, to the unfortunate person, meaning that they were trying to do so in a respectful way, a way that um, that did not make the recipient ashamed to receive. Well, exactly on this point. So while almsgiving is generally understood to be virtuous activity, there were circumstances or ways in which it could be done where it became morally problematic, right? So giving alms can be done in a way that makes you the bad person. What are those circumstances? Yes. Uh, well, certainly um, the idea of, of, of pride connected to alms giving was a major problem. Um, but uh, Interestingly, uh, for someone like John Chrysostom, um, this was also seen as a bit of a of a of a red herring, or or rather, uh, was more important that a person gave alms than that they did so with pride, because the idea was that eventually this would burst the bubble of of pride, and the important thing was to not have a person have an excuse. Chris Austin right. frequently raises, 
addresses people having, you know, what if I am seen doing this? Uh, and what if, what about um, uh, what the gospels say about um, not doing it in public? He says, well, it's best to, if you can, not to do it in public. But in any case, that should never be an excuse for not giving. And here's the thing, Anthony, uh, one of the things which um, uh, has to be understood is the social setting in which this happened. Uh, first of all, the cities we're talking about where this kind of almsgiving was emphasized uh, tended to have rich and poor people uh, walking down the same streets. Uh, um, they were right. obviously, uh, they could separate from each other, but they were much more, it was much harder to do than in our modern society, uh, which which meant uh, that uh, it was all the more apparent when people were not actually responding to uh, and the outreach end. The second thing is that this was a slave society. And in particular, this was a society where slavery was um, uh, most manifest in the late in the the by the time of the Christian Roman Empire, by domestic slaves who would attend uh, the their their owner, their wealthy owner walking through the streets, and one of the things that Chrysostom regularly uh, um, decries is the fact that Christians would use their slaves to do their alms giving. So uh, a request would come out and uh, the, the, someone who carried the, the purse, the slave that carried the purse for the rich Christian uh, would, do, would be the one who would interact with the, the poor person. And this is the thing that Chris Ostom repeatedly uh, um, uh, criticizes among his uh, congregationals. Uh, and... Um, he says that this is an insult to the person asking, but it also means that you don't get any of the benefits of almsgiving, by which he doesn't mean the reward in heaven, though there's there's that. But he, what he really means is that you don't have the opportunity to uh, to learn compassion by humbling yourself. Yeah. Now, the final thing I'll say about this is one of his ways of making this argument is to point to the uh, Old Testament example of the patriarch Abraham. Uh, and there's a famous scene in uh, um, chapter 18 of Genesis of uh, Abraham being at home and having three strangers come to him or pass by in need. And Abraham, though he has 318 domestic slaves at hand, he doesn't serve he doesn't use any of them to serve these three people, but he does it all himself. And he does so in a way that's supposed to convey, uh, well, it conveys his own humility and um, uh, makes the three people not feel ashamed. So anyhow, that's, that's, that's a major part of this. And yeah, sure, there are stories of, of, of haughty, proud um, uh aristocratic almsgivers. Uh, Jerome famously talks about one who uh, punched a, a beggar in the face when she came back for seconds. Uh, and that's actually a, a, a not uncommon trope in all this. But the story is always about um, the pettiness and the, 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 uh, of, of 
of the giver in those situations. Uh, and usually it's, it's pointed out as a way of trying to teach people how to do almsgiving correctly. Yeah, so, I mean, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to talk about one more category because I love the way in which your analysis sort of ferrets out the moral pitfalls of these kinds of relationships where, you know, on the surface of it, one person is trying to do something good and, you know, another person receives a benefit. And then, you know, once the whole apparatus of Christian virtues and sort of humility and giving and so forth comes into play, it starts getting really, really complicated. <laughs> and both parties, you know, can walk into an exchange with apprehension and possibly come away insulted or feel that they've been wronged. Um, and it, there's a lot of nuance that you bring out here in all of these um, uh, encounters or transactions or however you want to figure them. Um, could we talk about one more thing that's what is the difference between alms and charity? Because I think that gets into the, the sort of very fine parsing of these concepts. Yeah, sure. Um, look, uh, I, I never thought that I'd be writing about charity in this book. It, 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 it became important about three years into working on it wow. when I realized that among in, in sources on, uh, that had to do with desert solitaries. These are monks who lived by themselves without any institutional backing. Uh, the word alms barely ever appears. And people had always asked, oh, monks are great alms givers and stuff like that. And I, I found, yes, monks certainly gave alms, but it's not really emphasized in the sources. And there are various reasons for that. But I will say what, what, what is emphasized is monks giving, uh, these, these particular types of monks, the solitaries, giving charity, ag agape uh, in Greek. Um, and th this charity could be, uh, um, you know, reified into its into a, a material item. But most interestingly, it also it became also a uh, a gift uh, of one's own sort of spiritual self to someone. And what tied all these things together, I I came to realize was that uh, these were gifts that came from one's essential resources as I like to say, uh, which means that they came uh, with, they, they always involved a bit of self-sacrifice. Now, this became apparent when I saw a source describing a, a, a gift of charity as being uh, living up to the gospel saying, this is the gospel of John, um, that uh, the willingness to give your life for your brother is, is what is um, what perfect charity means. So um, this idea of, of self-sacrifice permeates the, the ascetic monastic tradition. Um, that said, charity, uh, uh, sorry, charitable sacrifice and, and, and gifts of self-sacrifice. At the same time, charity is seen as a form of almsgiving. It's seen as the highest form of almsgiving. It's, it's uh, when, when John Chrysostom is preaching this 
preaching almsgiving to his um, congregations, all of whom abound in wealth. He spoke to the rich, uh, both in Antioch and Constantinople. That was his job. Um, uh, he would he would argue that almsgiving eventually, because it begat compassion, would eventually also then lead to charity. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, not all alms were charity, but all charity were alms, and charity was based on the giving of charity uh, presumed in the background, the willingness also to give to give alms. So one is giving of your surplus and then eventually giving more and more and more. So you verge eventually on your essential resources, i.e. you go into the realm of self-sacrifice. Now, of course, uh, in the Gospels, there are two there are at least two great exemplars of this. One of them is the widow and her two mites, uh, who outdoes all the other alms givers because she gives of her her essential resources. Okay, and Chrysostom presents this as a form of uh, when talking about charity. Okay, uh, the other great uh, example, of course, is uh, the God Jesus Himself. Uh, and mm-hmm. self-sacrifice uh, out of love. So that's the paradigm. Both of these are paradigms behind this gift of charity uh, um, and make it a much more refined um, and uh, important, in a way, uh, uh, form of giving that is practiced, especially in the ascetic communities, um, uh, monastic communities that are pro- proliferating, pro- yeah, proliferating at this time. Yeah, it seems to have less to do with the needs of the person who's receiving than with the moral uh, stature of the person. That, that is the, the 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 giver's cultivation of a particular virtue. Um, almost independently of the particular needs of the person receiving. Like I am going all in on these virtues of uh, compassion, humility, self-sacrifice. Yeah, let me say something to that. I'm glad you raised that point. Um, yes, as always, every much depends on the giver. However, what's really interesting, and I never really appreciated this sufficiently when writing this book. I only reflected on it later. Uh, is that um, it's actually with gifts of charity that you start to have an expectation of moral reform and improvement in the recipient. Uh, Because Hmm. the gift of charity is seen to be a long-term, let's say long-term form of almsgiving. Uh, And a person has totally dedicated themselves and risked their own life for this other person. Now, in monastic settings, this is the idea is that you're you are bearing the burden of someone, which means you are uh, guaranteeing your soul for the moral reform of a of a fellow monk who's 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 a sinner. And as a more uh, you have a more advanced elder, giving a gift of charity to that sinner by being willing to assume some of their sins and pray and perform penance to get them absolved. But Uh, uh, this is, this is the real world. 
And a lot of our monastic letters deal with uh, these elders who go all in for a monk, but that monk is still continues to sin. Right. And the idea is that you you do stop that relationship if you've seen that, but you because you expect that sinner to start to at least try a bit, throw in some of their own sweat and prayers uh, uh, as well and reform themselves. Right, right. Finally, the, the last thing I should say about this long-term charitable relationship, and I think it's something really cool about it, is that um, it's actually supposed to eventually be a reciprocal one in which the the recipient is giving as much back to the receiver, to the giver, as initially given out. And so it becomes less asymmetrical and becomes, in fact, equal and peer-based. And the idea of charity is eventually a fusion of souls, which sounds good for modern romantic notions of love. Yes. Um, but it's it's there in the ascetic literature. Really quite striking. Dan, I got to hand it to you. You've done a wonderful job of... Uh, nuancing all of these relationships. And I recommend your book to everybody who's listening, uh, especially because you use the sources and stories and letters to illustrate every one of these quandaries and expectations and frustrations that that these uh, relationships created. Uh, so it's very well done. Well, yeah, Anthony, let me just say that it wouldn't have been worth doing if I did if I didn't have all those sources. <laughs> no. I mean, one of the reasons I like writing um, and why I find it so hard to find topics that I can really get into is that, you know, I, unless I can have the, the sources speak for me um, and it's really right right there and the richness of this material. Yes. Uh, I didn't anticipate, you know, I I once talked to. Um, Peter Brown, uh, who I think all your your listeners will know the name. Yes. Uh, but but um, Brown and I came to writing about wealth because that's one of the main things my book's about: the idea of sacred wealth. Uh, we don't have time to get into it, but it's it's part of it's a central notion. In any case, he and I were uh, coming to this idea of wealth in uh, the Christian world at the same time, early two thousands. Uh, he, uh, we and I, we sat down once in the Dumbarton Oaks, uh, um, garden and, uh, I was just forming my ideas. So I kept pretty much my mouth pretty much closed, but Peter, uh, shared with me that he was only going to focus on the Western Roman empire, uh, in the Christian era. And when I asked him why he wasn't doing his initial project of doing the whole uh, Christian Roman world of late antiquity. He said, well, the material in the West is just so rich. And he, in fact, does have just, he just was able, he was able to write three books basically about that. Yeah. Because of the sources that he had, which were very personal. My sources were very, very different. I never could have written anything like what he did. Uh, but because of the combination of of letters I have from monks and sermons to lay people and hagiography sort of depicting the ideals in practice between both. You know, I, I really had a core rich, a rich well of resources myself. So I was very lucky uh, about that um, and grateful that I did.
I'm I'm glad you did, and, and I enjoyed the book and, and and recommend it. And thank you also for coming onto the podcast. My great pleasure. I think we'll leave it at that, and um, enjoy the summer. And hopefully we'll we'll meet in the next suitable occasion. Okay, Anthony. Have a good summer. Bye. Bye, Dan.